What happened to the old Celtic gods in Celtic folklore? What's happened to these figures that we come across in the classical literature, literature uh, written by uh, famous Romans such as Julius Caesar and what have you, who suggested that there was a whole pantheon of uh, gods in Iron Age Celtic Europe? What happened to these gods in Celtic folklore? Where did they go? I think that this is actually a classification issue. I think that we often consider gods to be these uh, all-powerful beings that exist in a particular other world or paradise or separate dimension and that the appropriate relationship is that we should make little figurines of them and put them on our altars and worship them and have a devotional relationship. And we can see that that was definitely the case back in Iron Age Europe. We can see that there was definitely shrines and altars and effigies and figurines. This devotional relationship to deity is definitely what's going on there in the Celtic Iron Age. And we can see that that does persist in some instances all the way through into the medieval period. But it certainly peters out, obviously, as Christianity turns up. You can't have different shrines to different gods. We can imagine that there were still uh, shrines being uh, adorned and gods being worshipped at these shrines, probably well up until about a thousand years ago. But we can imagine that it was definitely dying out by that period. The only reference we have to uh, a devotional relationship to a figure, and I'm not going to say a god in this instance because... Uh, it's really a wild spirit. We have this prayer from a 14th century Latin text, uh, some ecclesiastic complaining about those crazy Welsh peasants praying to Gwyn Apneith. And we have a record of the prayer, of course, uh, preserved for us in that Latin manuscript. Now, that devotional relationship isn't really a devotional relationship with a god. It's a devotional relationship with a wild spirit. And I think that this is a, it's a little bit different. Gwynapneath as a wild spirit is really a spirit of place, a spirit of, of living nature. It comes from an animistic culture which sees the landscape and material reality as living and alive and conscious. And these different archetypes, we could say, not necessarily just representing aspects of the natural world, but literally embodying them and being the personalities of these different aspects of the natural world. And I think that's the context in which we're understanding Gwynapneith. So in some senses, the god of the Celtic Iron Age who would have been set on a pedestal and who may have been animistic in the Celtic setting, we're not quite sure, but certainly in the Roman setting, not so animistic. Definitely uh, a human-type ideal being embodied in the god as opposed to an, an, an aspect of wild nature. But as we come through into the medieval period, we see Gwynapneith. He is a wild spirit and he's far more in keeping with... Uh, beings from the supernatural realm that represent the living spiritual life of the land. This notion of animism once again. He is a personality, a persona of the land. Yeah? Different to a god in the classical sense as being uh, above humanity. Now when we come into later folklore, I often describe... 
later folklore in Wales in particular as an evolution of the earlier medieval mythology. So whereas we have figures such as Rhiannon in the first branch of the Mabinogi, who herself may have her roots in an older horse goddess. I've made a video on this, of course. But Rhiannon isn't necessarily a goddess in the first branch of the Mabinogi. She is very much a supernatural human-like figure who becomes mortal or comes to suffer the fate of mortal women throughout the course of the story. She seems to arrive as a big shining horse goddess, all beautiful and otherworldly, but as she becomes further entangled in mortal society, she seems to lose that magical otherworldly shine and of course becomes a degraded beast of burden in many ways which is it in itself an interesting metaphor perhaps for the relationship between mortal and immortal between natural and supernatural that the more the supernature comes into contact with nature the more degraded it becomes or at least in human terms so we have this type of figure in medieval wales and we could say that we can see in the figure of rhiannon a rough outline of an older mythology that may well have been associated with a goddess in the pure sense a goddess as we would might think of in uh, classical mythology for example Rhiannon I would say evolves into the fairy bride so whereas we have an aristocratic mythology in medieval Wales by the time we get to the early modern period sort of around the just before the Industrial Revolution and then into the Industrial Revolution when we have this developing working class, instead of Rhiannon being closer to the older type of goddess, she has essentially become much closer to the Gwynapneeths of this world. She's become much closer to the animistic beliefs of common folk. That is the the human form personifying or literally being the personality of a given place. Uh, the fairy bride arises from a specific lake, marries uh, into a specific family, becomes part of the human life of that community in that place, very much situated in specific locations. And in that sense, the fairy bride isn't necessarily a goddess in the pure sense, as we might think of this type of figure in the Iron Age Celtic culture, but she's much more closer to the life of the land. So I would say, and this is just my own guess, that there is something that happens to mythologies depending on which class of society is using them. Aristocratic mythologies express themselves in these very aloof god and goddess in the pure sense type figures whereas the mythologies of common folk which are usually expressed in folk beliefs and folk stories but i would argue are as much mythology as anything we find in the highfalutin culture of the aristocracies in common folk culture that mythology is adapted towards their worldview, which is far more on a par with the life of the land. It's far more on a par with the personality of, of the location. It's far more on a par with this notion of 
panpsychism, the fact that, that the place itself has its own personality and is alive, not necessarily in a distant heaven or not necessarily needing to be worshipped in the devotional sense or in the normal sense of classical uh, mythologies. And that animism, I think, is the underlying foundation of mythology and common folk culture. And the more these aristocratic mythologies come into contact with this animism, the more that animism transforms the gods and goddesses into these wild spirits. Now, that's just my pet theory. So, you know, I'm not pretending that it's uh, a complete answer. There's plenty of other folks with other opinions on this type of thing. But that's my reading of it, at least. That's how I see it. I see that this notion of animism transforms mythologies from when they're transmitted from an aristocratic setting to the setting of the peasantry of common folk. Animism being the overwhelming influence in that culture it grounds the mythology, pardon the pun, in, in a different setting. 